0: Hey guys, welcome to the Tomato Tomato podcast. I'm Jenna. I'm Chris. And welcome to our second episode. Um, Thanks for sticking around, or if this is your first episode, then welcome. Um, Because
1: you just like even number things. Yes, exactly. It's like, I'm going to skip to number two and not listen to number one. Or if you haven't. Fuck with odd numbers. Or if
0: you haven't watched Crank yet, that's a valid thing. Like, that's a valid reason to skip to number two. So for today's episode, we will be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Um, and just a blanket warning, all of the spoilers. Spoilers. All of the spoilers. All of them. Uh, the movie's been out for three weeks now, four weeks if you probably haven't seen by, it by the time now. this has come out. So if you haven't seen it by now and you're listening to this episode, go see it first. I have seen it three times since it came out, so you don't have an excuse.
1: <laughs> and then in, in case you didn't listen to the first one for whatever reason... Uh, This podcast is all about movies and movie reviews. Specifically, we use Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, As divisive as it is, it's 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 a good platform for discourse it's a good resource it's
0: a good it's a good hub for what we're trying to do which is look at a movie and then look at the different ways that the movie is written about in the context of a review and kind of use those reviews as a way to talk about the movie and to talk about like what the reviewers Mm -hmm. are missing from the particular movie
1: and so as we mentioned before uh this episode's movie is guardians of the galaxy volume two And so on the old Rotten Tomatoes, the critic rating, uh, it has an 81%, so it is certified fresh. The average rating for critics is a 7.1. There's 290 reviews, and an overwhelming amount of them are fresh, 235 and 55 rotten reviews. Mm -hmm. And the audience score is 90%, with an average rating of 4.3 out of 5. And there are almost 80,000 user ratings on Rotten Tomatoes.
0: So there are less user ratings for that than there are for Crank, I think. There are. There was like half a million or some crazy number for Crank. That's really weird to me.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's because, granted, like the movie has been out longer. Yeah. But it also, like this is a big uh, Marvel blockbuster. You would figure it would have more ratings. Yeah. More people logging on and kind of just clicking on the stars but yeah that's surprising yeah
0: but so I'm looking right now I had to pull up a thing just because I was curious so that so with the Rotten Tomatoes rating of 81% it is currently the seventh rate highest rated movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, really? Yeah, which is surprising to me. So going, so it has eighty one percent, and then the next highest one is Winter Soldier with eighty nine percent, which is shocking to me. That should be that's also that shocking. That I, I would have thought 100? that would have been easily yeah <laughs> like come on. it
1: easily should be at least in the top yeah three yeah.
0: So it's Winter Soldier, Civil War, Doctor Strange, <sighs> Guardians of the Galaxy One, um, Avengers One, and Iron Man One. Like Iron Man, one is the highest with ninety four percent. But that also, I feel like, is a sign of the times because yeah, I f- yeah, yeah, I feel
1: like if we come back in a year, everyone the ratings will change. Everyone
0: busted a nut for the first Iron Man, so yeah, it's like that that is overly reflective. So
1: it's yeah, it's it's just a sign of the times.
0: Yeah, well, but well, but volume two has the same rating as Ant Man, just to kind of give a comparison to a much more recent um, MCU output. So yeah. God, I didn't Well, let's yeah. see,
1: we, well what's the comparison to volume 1?
0: Uh so it is 91 in for volume 1 and then 81 for volume 2. So okay. so 10% more or 10% less of a positive rating, which is expected, I would say. Like yeah. I I don't it, I don't find that entirely implausible, but it is kind of it's interesting that there's that much of a gap. But realistically, I'm looking right now like Like, if you go between Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2, it goes from 94% to... There's a precipitous drop. 72%. So... And, like, Iron Man 3 has 79%. So, it's, it's interesting to see how franchises kind of go all over the place. Really um Captain America I think is the only like MCU output where like the further installments are higher rated which is what you would expect because I mean
1: which is so not the norm Yeah
0: but it's like it's what you would expect for Captain America because those movies are just amazing So
1: Well which I think well let's take a look at those last two Captain America movies yeah. not to divert too much mm-hmm. but those were all the Russo brothers mm-hmm. and then you look at Guardians of the Galaxy that's all James Gunn Gun. Yeah and so when you look at it it's like oh that's because they're more creator driven by a singular voice yes and that's what gives them these ratings and while why they are so high
0: exactly yeah um but so going from there so that just kind of gives a blanket idea of kind of the critic reception of this movie that it it got the 81 percent. but so so to go with this we picked Two rotten reviews and one fresh review for the movie, and are kind of going to use that as a jumping off point. Um, it was funny because I actually rewatched the movie for the third time yesterday, and I, as I was watching it, I was thinking, God, it's going to be really hard to find rotten reviews for this because, like, because like everyone's so hyped up on the Marvel train that I, I can't really see like major outlets giving this a negative rating and then like both of our rotten reviews that we picked are from very pretty rotten well they're pretty rotten and they're from the new yorker and the failing new york times so they are very much from not a big
1: surprise i'm not honestly surprised that the new yorker kind of poo poos (laughs) a big uh blockbuster especially a marvel one it kind of seems like their mo so it's not surprising.
0: Yeah. I'd love um, to just do... That, I mean, it it would get a little too confrontational, but it would be fun to do like a mini episode of just like, okay, let's look at one particular outlet and talk about how they rate movies of, part- of a particular genre like we could look at the new yorker and how they rate like all superhero movies or like the av club and how they rate all whatever type of movies and see kind of like do you just have a bias against this thing and you're just like you expect your target audience to also kind of shit on that thing or are you oh, just like a pain yeah. in the ass <laughs> like it's kind of confusing <laughs> all to of tell. the above. yeah but so not
1: to crap on the New Yorker, no. but it's all of the. Above.
0: Although I will say the New Yorker had the f- most fun review to read, in my opinion, I thoroughly enjoyed it, reading. It this It was one. very enjoyable. The, yeah, the like metaphors and idioms that were used were very like on point, and like even I guess we should say before we start this off, like if if this is your first episode that you're listening to, we are even if it's a movie that we genuinely really love, we are willing to look and understand. We're not, like, not
1: going to be unafraid to be critical Yeah, of it. We're
0: not going to be blindly uh, accepting of any particular movie. Um, it just we might take a longer time to have a discourse about a movie if we like it in particular, but we are very willing to kind of see that there's problems to every single movie. Yeah, we're,
1: we're going to take a step back. Of course, we're going to be all caught up on the hype train. Yeah. But then we'll take a step off the hype train at Critical Station and... And examine it.
0: Well, and like even with this movie, I've kind of, I noticed a personal sort of hype train for me because I went to see the movie yesterday with my mom and there were maybe like eight or nine other people in the theater with us because it was the middle of the day on a Wednesday. Like who's going to go see Guardians or who's going to go to see movies to begin with really. But so like it was interesting seeing what jokes had a response in the showing of like 11 or 12 people versus what jokes had a response in the like almost sold out opening night showing when I saw this for the first time because it was like a lot of things that I like genuinely laughed at the first time or that got like a very audible response from the audience did not in the smaller showing. So it was kind of like a sign I'm, of like the do hype. Do you remember change. any
1: specific ones offhand? Because I'm I'm kind of curious I'm as to like what to jokes. Think. I don't know. Because I, yeah. I have only seen it the one time. Yeah. I would like to see it again. Yeah. I really would. I just haven't had the time. Yes. Um, Too much Food Network so I, to watch. I, I, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Sorry
0: for calling you out.
1: <laughs> thanks for calling me out. Um, <laughs> um, but, it, but it's all, like I have a lot of it kind of mostly fresh in my mind. Yeah. Um, and reading these reviews has kind of helped me out.
0: But, yeah, I don't understand. Like, it, I agree that it's cramped, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't see it as being more cramped than, like, a Star Wars movie.
1: Which, uh, it's a good segue into James Gunn is obviously a fan of Star Wars, <laughs> and this is, is so inspired by the Empire Strikes Back.
0: Yes, exactly. Like
1: It has the arc of the father reveal. We're going to split the team up. It, it's so inspired by Empire Strikes Back.
0: Yeah, well, and I'm trying to look what yeah so in the new yorker because i didn't i didn't write this quote down but it definitely ties into what you're saying um the new yorker review makes a lot of comparisons between ego and darth vader and how like darth vader or ego kind of one-ups darth vader's plan sort of of like oh well you just have you, you control the death star but like i build my own planet and have this whole like, grander scheme and all of that sort of stuff. and it's, But it's kind of interesting having that, like, more menacing father figure slash villain compacted in, like, super cuddly, like, space dad Kurt Russell. <laughs> like, it's just kind of an yeah. interesting contest. Because, like, I wouldn't have made that comparison to Darth Vader naturally. Like, obviously there's Star Wars allegories through the whole movie, but, like, in my mind it's, like, they're two completely different sides of the same coin to me just because of, like, their demeanor and their presentation and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because looking over the New Yorker review again, um, the reviewer just doesn't kind of like this arc. Um, Which, like, yeah. he, He doesn't emotionally connect with it. Um, Which,
0: like, I have so, <laughs> I have a lot to say about Ego's arc in particular. I might save it for when a little bit later in the podcast because otherwise, I'm probably going to derail our conversation. That's a whole
1: other discourse. <laughs> yes, that we'll get yes, to. Yes,
0: I will get to that discourse, but we kind of will need to kind of cover some a little more ground first. But it's it's just interesting to me how how people don't resonate with it. And I don't know, like, I I can understand that people wouldn't, like, that's naturally going to happen with every movie. There's no one particular story or plot line that completely resonates with 100% of people. But it's just interesting because I had never, I haven't really met or heard a response from someone who that didn't resonate to.
1: Yeah, one of the, the positive things that I've heard from people is that this movie has more heart to it than the first one. Yeah, absolutely. The first one is kind of very linear. In its storytelling, well, it's kind of like, oh, we're going to take this disparate group of misfits, put them together, and by the end, they will be a well, family. Well, I'm
0: like, going, particularly zeroing in on, like, ego's motivation and ego's sort of arc and everything, I, the thing that kind of resonates with me the most is, like, he there's there's so much heart in and like emotion in his drive as a villain that isn't really seen in the rest of the marvel villains at all like at least on like the movie scale and whatever like even if you're comparing it to volume one like Ronan is just like it's a very stereotypical sort of like this class of aliens versus that class of aliens sort of thing. It's he's he's kind of cut and dry. Yeah, it's not really, like, it's not anything that that we haven't seen before, but it's, like, played kind of tongue-in-cheek because it's a Guardians movie. But whereas with Ego, it's like, I mean, we, we talked I, about I this. I think what makes Ego yeah. a
1: good villain, him a good villain, is you don't see it coming. Because there's that turn when he says, spoiler alert, I gave your mom cancer. That's the turn when it's like, oh, shit. Because we all kind – can of like, oh, the Sovereign, I, they're all going to be the bad guys. But no, they kind of – gun turns it on us. Which was like smart and, and, marketing
0: on Marvel's part that I haven't really – I haven't seen them kind of zeroing in on that before where it's like – like I, I knew going into it that I wouldn't know who the villain really was. And like I've kind of had that with other Marvel movies but it's much more cut, cut and dry where it's like there's obviously this really big villain and it's not like a secret villain that's really the thing. But like, yeah,
1: we all knew Taserface wasn't going to be the big bad. Yeah, of this movie. but like,
0: he was just going to be part of it. But like, like, I guess Civil War is kind of an example because they like hid Baron Zemo from like all of the like trailers and promotional stuff and whatever. But it kind of made it to where that, that movie I kind of is an it's 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 an anomaly because the you just think it's going to be the teams fighting each other. You don't think it's going to be like an outside villain at all. But, like, with other Marvel movies, it's like, okay, like, with Ragnarok, I, I I obviously know who the villain is. Like, and with every other, like, pretty obvious... I guess yeah. Winter Soldier probably has that, too, though, where it's like...
1: Yeah, like, if, if you weren't aware of, like, the Winter Soldier story yeah. before... But yeah, like, It was a complete blindside kind of moment. Well, no, but, like, but, if you I don't even had- mean, like,
0: the Winter Soldier reveal of, like, Bucky's the Winter Soldier. I mean, like, Alexander Pierce being the oh, big dad. Yeah. Like, that was a surprise, I would say. And that's kind of, that's a little bit similar to this one. But there's there's much more investment, I feel like, in this one because Ego... Like, you, you, tell, you can tell that Pierce is super shady in Winter Soldier before he even is revealed as really the villain. But, like, Ego, like, cozies yeah, up to with, everyone and, and is so trusted. Yeah,
1: Yeah. you spend two-thirds of the movie getting invested in this relationship of, like, Peter. And it's like, you're my dad. Let's make it for lost time. And Ego's like, yeah, I want to do that. I actually want to hang out with you. I've been looking for you. Well, and-, and then we have that turn. Uh, at the end of the movie, and it's like, oh, well, shit, now we got to duke it out. And then,
0: like, every line that he says, when you watch the movie a, a second time over, every line that he says takes on the, like, dual meanings, where it's like the first time around you're interpreting it as him just being the, the space dad, and then the second time around it's more, like, tinged with this villainy of him, like, kind of explaining his crusade and explaining why Yandu like, why he was mad that Yondu didn't take him in, like Peter into his planet and all that sort of stuff. It's like there's there's more of a context in there that is is added when you see it the second time around. and I think that that's really yeah. cool but um but yeah, so going back to New- the New Yorker, I'm trying to think. Yeah, this New York, like the he, New Yorker review. I just love he. Just he wording. says that
1: Rocket Raccoon should have been turned into a hat. <laughs> so that kind of sets the tone for them He they, also
0: says that Gamora is as if a Spartan warrior had been blended with an avocado. Avocado. And I just, yeah. wrote, I just wrote "Good Lord" next to that because it's just like okay. It, it was I, like so it's, I, it's interesting. Looking at this review, yeah.
1: there, you, this reviewer probably went in disliking volume one
0: but he but Um, I don't know if he did though because so he he makes a comment in the first paragraph of his review that I think is really interesting and kind of says a lot about how like I don't know it says a lot about the superhero genre as a whole about how uh, the, the, the whole thing about the dancing and how it's it, the challenge it says the true challenge of superhero movies is to remind your audience that the very idea of saving the world or an infinity of worlds or whatever is in itself a joke and that this puffy grandeur is begging to be popped and
1: that's true because li- and then later in the review um, he also says let's hope that volume three recaptures the fizz of the original so I was wrong this reviewer probably did enjoy volume yeah. one, uh, was just disappointed.
0: Although I will uh, admit, so the thing about rocket, I will admit the more that like w- watching the movie, I was kind of annoyed with rocket to where I can kind of understand the sentiment of the hat. Like it's an awful thing to say. And I still like him as a character, but I'm still like, you're really being a dick. And you were not as much of a dick in the first movie. That, like So
1: that kind of goes on to another yeah. criticism, a general one that I have seen. Um, that James Gunn when writing this movie he played to eat each character's strengths yeah. especially Drax and he kind of it, flanderized them almost yeah. and if you don't know what that is uh it comes from the Simpsons <laughs> where you have the character Ned Flanders who was a, he had a lot of depth in the early seasons and as the show progressed he just became a character sure yeah. character. i can speak english <laughs> um, obviously but he 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 morphed into a joke of himself like
0: a one-dimensional
1: yeah he didn't have that depth anymore yeah and that's one of the critiques i saw of this one where gun took those little those quirks from the first one and made the quirks the character although i will say in the second one like
0: i will say that that is definitely true with drax and i wouldn't say i feel like rocket as a character does have an arc within this movie and like i saw there's i think it's from um either the Mary Sue or black girl nerds or one of like something that I follow on Twitter, but there was a, uh, like a op ed piece that someone wrote about like allegorizing rockets arc to like being a domestic abuse survivor. And I haven't read it yet. I have it bookmarked, but I was kind of like, Oh, that's a really interesting kind of take on that. Just a quick editor's note, it, the article I'm talking about is, in fact, from Black Girl Nerds. It's a very well-written, very emotional article. It kind of messed me up very early this morning reading it. Um, and it is called I Am Rocket, A Reflection on PTSD from a Sexual Trauma Survivor, and it's written by Maya Golden. You can find a link to it in our description. So going back into that with, like, the, the dimensional element of everything, I still am kind of, I'm, I'm really interested in that thing that they said about, like, that this reviewer said about saving the world being itself kind of a joke, and I feel that's kind of interesting looking at the MCU versus the DCU, and versus, like, the other Marvel outputs that aren't necessarily in the MCU because it's, like, it's interesting to see that what, what really seems to succeed for Marvel is either... The like smaller scale world saving things where it's like Winter Soldier or Civil War or whatever, where it's like obviously the world is still at stake, but it feels much more condensed or it's or, or it's, it's this like big the world is literally thing. going to
1: end blue beam in the sky. Yeah, And like the
0: blue beam in the sky is starting to become such a stale thing that that's why this reviewer is kind of saying like it like when you look at like an Iron Man movie or like the first two Thor movies or whatever and that they play that completely a thousand percent seriously it doesn't pay off as well as something like Guardians or like Deadpool or whatever but then it's interesting taking that because I feel like that, that critique really only applies to the MCU whereas like I can see a bit of... Well, and yeah, and, and, like...
1: and reviewers are becoming aware of this yeah. now because jumping over to the AV Club one, <laughs> they make a note of that, yeah. saying that at least they're not fighting a hole in the God, sky. I know. Which is true because if you go back to all the MCU movies yeah. and even some other uh, kind of genre movies, it's it's like a trope now. Yeah. There's probably an article for it on TV Tropes where it's like blue beam in the sky, <laughs> so we literally, portal opens up. So to,
0: to, to tie into that, we literally... At my work at comicbook.com, so we were writing about the Flash finale on Tuesday night, and this is a small spoiler. This is a small spoiler, but there, yeah, there isn't context. But it's there's a blue beam in the sky, and so one of my coworkers literally wrote an article that's like ten tropes that superhero shows need to stop doing, and the header image was just the blue beam in the sky, because it's like it's such a repetitive thing. And it you creates... could show me
1: a picture of a blue beam, yeah. and I could not tell you what film it is from, because <laughs> exactly. there are so many. Well, and like, it's ridiculous. Well, and like
0: so, applying that over, like the DCU has that for a bit with Suicide Squad, but there's like so much more going on that it's not just. They, a, oh, they had blue... it
1: in Man of Steel too. Yeah, to
0: exactly. Sense. But it's like, but I feel like the Man of Steel feels more like a sign of the times thing, where it was it was playing into kind of the. Iron Man and like Thor kind of way of dealing with it of like let's make this gritty DC superhero movie but also kind of take in the Marvel structure a little bit and so like that would explain yeah. the Blue Beam in a Skype stuff but like with the DCU I feel like it's interesting content like contrast with BVS because the it doesn't treat saving the world as a joke but it treats the people who save the world as kind of like these like otherworldly like godlike figures and whatever which like you could have a whole discussion just about like we could have a whole podcast just about that but it's kind of interesting which for,
1: for a hot second yeah. Star-Lord was one of those godlike like exactly. creatures yeah
0: which is kind of it's interesting to see how they, they introduced that in this movie but then it, it really became like a joke it was like oh yeah I get, a, I get a million years to like make weird statues of Pac-Man and weird other weird shit and it's like totally played as a joke when it's like okay you just introduced this like you <laughs> (laughs) introduced this concept of this character that people like but is still just like a dude with laser guns you just made him more powerful than like all of the Avengers you
1: you like fundamentally change his character yeah it make him super OP he's a celestial being now and it's like oh I'm gonna go off and make Pac-Man and some really weird (laughs) shit
0: Pac-Man and Heather Locklear and Skeletor and I'm like (laughs) okay buddy I'm
1: like all right which is and that's all kind of another thing that I see, like all the the reviews yeah. hit on is all the the kind of the pop culture references, yeah. the dated references.
0: Um, Which, like, I mean, like, yeah, it's interesting because I think it was. Let's see, I'm trying to figure out what review it was. Some review, one of the three reviews that we have. Oh yeah, I guess it's New Yorker. Duh, I was scrolling too far on my of notes. Of course it was. But so it says, "Stop looking over your shoulders, guys. Get back to the future." And I'm like, okay, but. Like, obviously, the the Guardians will be introduced into, like, the more present-day Marvel events with, like, Infinity War and Guardians 3 and all of that. But it's, like, this movie, I can't see this movie working, like, this franchise working without that super dated, like, nostalgic kind of appeal to it. And especially with the introduction of, like, the old Guardians team... Like they're not going if like if Gunn is going to do what he says that he's doing of introducing them in volume three and then possibly having like a blended version of the Guardians in volume four, like that's going to be even more nostalgia. So I'm like, I know that's just like
1: it's kind of inescapable. Exactly, and it's like and there there are definitely some uh, kind of pop culture references that work more than others. I think yeah, like the Mary Poppins one. The Mary Poppins one one is perfect, and it and it works. Yeah. Um, by the way if you're kinda... listening
0: to this go sign the petition to have Michael Rooker be and Mary Poppins returns. She <laughs> really <laughs> should be. It's such a perfect thing that I really want to have happen. But yeah, like stuff like that that's a little more timeless. Like there's either the timeless stuff or these there's the like unbelievably nostalgic stuff, but I actually going along with that there's kind of a funny thing. I'll have to link to it in the description for this review, but um, this guy that I follow on Twitter went on a rant the other day about how Star-Lord's pop culture references are still so dated that it creates the question within the Guardians universe of, like, does alien pop culture really exist? Yes, I saw like, that, too. Yeah, because it's, like, he... Like, his his base of reference for, like, a romantic relationship is Cheers, which came out, like, 30, 30 or 40 years beforehand. And, like... But it's, like, do you not have any alien pop culture that's like a better frame of reference or does he just choose to ignore it which is kind of a really interesting thing because it's like that that stuff kind of plays of like oh it's like cheers blah 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 like that that'll yeah. play to like the older audiences and stuff but after a while it's like okay buddy like what actually is your frame it. of reference <laughs> like
1: exactly yeah yeah which I don't know how it'll be interesting to see how they play with that come infinity that'll War. be
0: really fun I feel like that that's kind of an element of the Guardians and the Avengers that I'm really excited for because, I mean, just Peter hasn't been down to earth in all of that time, so just kind of seeing how everything... Like, he thought Azun was the pinnacle of... Modern technology.
1: <laughs> Which I will not get into my Zune rants. <laughs> I'm very pro-Zoom. Yes, you Fuck are. Fuck iPod. When we, saw, when we both
0: saw this for the first time, I immediately, like, one of my first thoughts coming out of it was, Oh my God, they referenced Zooms. And I thought of you and I laughed out loud.
1: That that got the biggest laugh for me, partially, mostly because I'm biased to Zooms. I still have my Zooms. <laughs> yes, that is plural. Zooms. <laughs> uh, but that's a whole. That's Other story <laughs> for another day. I won't bore you yeah. with my goddamn
0: be <laughs> So I'm like, your reference, I know that is like appealing to the New Yorker crowd, but I'm like, that is such a not true reference, and it kind of made no, me laugh. No,
1: not at all. But...
0: um. But so then that and then there's another thing that's kind of funny to me. It's not officially in the Guardians Review in the New Yorker, but apparently they like doubling up and like putting here's like a Guardians Review and then here's a review for another movie. And so there's some Leah Schreiber. Leah Schreiber directed or Leah Schreiber starring boxer movie that was tied into this review, but so the open I wasn't really looking to read on it, but then I accidentally read the first paragraph because it mentioned guardians. And it was interesting to me because this sentence in particular made me laugh out loud because it was such a condescending thing to say. It says, it was talking about like song choice in movies and how apparently there's some sort of limited choice which is not even remotely mm-hmm. true but it says that would explain why guardians of the galaxy volume 2 needed something for baby Groot to groove to opted for mr blue sky which was previously heard in paul blart mall cop <laughs> <laughs> i'm just like that's such an, i don't
1: think anyone knew that that song was used in that I movie didn't. because no one saw that
0: movie i, I did when i was like 12 and also, well, and also, I watched Paul Blart too relatively recently for the "Till Death Do Us Blart" podcast, which I highly recommend. <laughs> but, <laughs> but so, like, but I didn't that that didn't occur to me that that was in that movie. But it's also kind of funny to me because the the New Yorkers trying to make the argument that it's like this pointless kind of just like oh here's a poppy song to just throw in that's already been used in other movies. But like you and I have had the conversation before about how. I had, I, I had the realization guns,
1: gun's musical choice is, it's, it's not just for fun. It's like, Oh, I like this old Fleetwood Mac song or this so ELO deliberate song. And
0: like the movie, there's the deliberate yeah. around it. And I, I was telling you the other day, cause I was singing it to myself and then I had like the biggest Oh shit realization because it's, it's one of the few, it's yeah, one of I'll the just, just, songs in the movie just, that, yeah,
1: look at the lyrics to Mr. Blue Sky and then with, with With the idea of ego in your brain.
0: Um, But yeah, because I was singing it to myself and then it it occurred to me that it's one of the few sequences, like musical sequences in the movie that ego isn't involved in or isn't introduced in, but every single lyric of that song reflects his whole mission and his whole view of like humanity. It's like humanity singing to ego almost. And that was just kind of fascinating to me that like Gunn threw that in, in a scene where it's just baby Groot dancing around. So no one would really actively pay attention to the lyrics. Exactly. But yeah. he just like snuck that in there, and I I do I, I believe it's intentional. He kind of telegraphed the movie yeah. in the first yeah. few like, minutes I'm, there. Yeah, I'm sure it was intentional because gun a lot of guns choices are so intentional. But it was just such a interesting thing for me to discover like two weeks later of just this huge oh shit moment when I realized that that was true. So, but yeah, so it's just kind of, it's funny to me that the New Yorker shits on that song in particular when I'm like, no, that, that song, that and the chain have like the most significance within the movie, I would say, to where it's like so deliberate that you can't really give shit for it. Like, even if you don't like that song or if you think it's overused, which I don't think it's overused. I think it's amazing that, like, Fleetwood Mac is used as the big third act, like, fight scene song. I really enjoyed that. Like, that made me so happy. And that's why I'm, like, always going to love this movie, even though I know it has its problems. Because, like, that's such a cool thing to see. But it's just kind of funny how people just, like, find any reason to kind of shit on it.
1: And then going back to, like, that whole third act. Yeah. It's very much a CGI eye fest of color and spectacle. And that's kind of what all these reviews hit on, is like visually, the movie's great. Yeah. They say sometimes it could be a little bit much, but... It's a feast for your eyes. Yeah.
0: So, Um, like, going into the AV Club, which was our one fresh review that we chose for here. So, like, I liked this opening line because it was saying that um, compared to the first movie, the sequel is something a little bit smoother. One might chalk it up to the Marvel Studios' recent embrace of the the strange legacies of Comist artists Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, or to the fact that Gunn has doubled down on the nostalgia, repainting the outer space setting in a Skittles color palette while drawing quotations of 80s pop culture. Which, like, I mean, that that basically sums up... Like, I love the Skittles color palette thing because it is so true. It's like... that is very true. And I love that that's the direction that Marvel as a whole seems to be going with their space things. Because it was interesting to me having um, Th- Thor the Dark World and this only be less than a year apart. Or, like, and Guardians 1 only be less than a year apart in release. And yet Dark World was so obnoxiously dark and gloomy and space is just just a bland color palette. Yeah. Whereas like the first Guardians was just all yeah, and the first Guardians was all just like purples and crazy colors and it all just fits so well. but then it's like this movie Took that like took fully embraced that like crazy ridiculous like there uh, there are some scenes in that like movie a painter that, like,
1: spilled all their colors yeah, on the it, ground. It like takes it's like, my oh, breath shit, away. Well, like how yeah. colorful
0: and how intricately done some of those colors are, and then it's it's fun knowing that Ragnarok is going to follow that kind of aesthetic because it works so perfectly. And it's like exactly. if you're going to have ridiculous space movies, you might as well have them look as ridiculous in space as possible. Like, you don't have to be limited to, like, boring color conventions. Like, you're just making a giant space opera.
1: Yeah, and in, and in a movie where you have a sentient planet, I mean, go <laughs> exactly. out with your colors. Exactly. And, and they call him Ego is depicted in the comics as a purple planetoid with an old man's face. Yeah. And they do that. Yeah. And that's the thing that at least all these reviewers kind of come back to is, like, they own up, it's like, yeah, it's a comic book movie, and it kind of honors what it comes from yeah. and it kind of embraces it all well
0: and like the av club talks about that as well kind of applying it to like james gunn's references and stuff and it says one line that i thought was kind of interesting it's like volume two can only be as irreverent as it is broadly and shamelessly derivative which i feel like is a really true point point. and like that i mean it definitely yeah. it's,
1: it's unabashedly borrowing yeah from other movies and pop cult pieces of pop culture yeah which I'm fine with. It's just like, in the end, yeah, it like. Because overall it works. Eh. Like if you're gonna rip something off, rip off good stuff. Yeah. Like Empire. And
0: like make it feel like part of the reason why I've seen the first Guardian so many times and I've seen, I've already seen this one so many times is it's like, it just makes me feel good. Like sitting there watching all of this like ridiculous stuff that like, harkens back to other pieces of pop culture that I like, and it's just, like, a fun story with a lot going on. Like, it, I just enjoy getting lost in that for two and a half hours. Yeah. And, like, I feel like that's a big appeal to a lot of the people within, or, like, a lot of the fans of this movie is kind of the, like, escapism, but there's still, like, enough heart and realism and stuff kind of thrown in.
1: Where I'm not totally detached from it, where I'll just move on after yeah. I see it. Yeah, well, and like... And then that, that kind of goes into uh one of the critiques a negative critique that the AV Club has is the the corny character <laughs> I
0: took that down too I said this positive review treats things more negatively than the rotten ones which like we saw really, we saw yes. that with crank a little bit last week where it was like the reviews are a little indistinguishable of like what would be rotten and what would be fresh this one is obviously much more positive but in, in like in its wording but it still finds segments where it just kind of just shits on a particular structure but it feels like it's more kind of it's it's kind of talking negatively about the format and not so much about the movie itself
1: yeah because uh, the the first one it points out as far as the corny character subplots is the star lord gamora uh romance that can't be spoken of which i i for me i i didn't need that i could have gone without that like that whole
0: plot line it was
1: it was fine but was like, like, uh,
0: yeah i feel like part of it is that gun has been trying like this definitely felt like the middle of a trilogy like with with that and like the gamora nebula relationship and like it's just stuff that they're setting up to where you can tell like okay the real payoff is going to be in act three kind of yeah is, like it's fair so, it's very he, much like, like the my, star wars yeah. format yeah because like yeah. the
1: critique I had of like specifically the Peter Gamora thing is like oh well of course naturally we're gonna start pairing our uh, lead guy and our lead girl together yeah. have a will they won't they kind of very a Cheers romance situation yeah. and it's like well I don't, we don't need it because we already have so many other kind of subplots going on which which I thought was nice that every character kind of had their own moment yeah. their mini arc yeah um, but it's like we don't really need the
0: Forced romance. boring.
1: <laughs> the boring hetero male <laughs> one.
0: Although it is kind of funny because I, I realized yesterday when he says the whole thing about the, oh, this is a cheer, Sam and Diane, they can't tell each other that they like each other because if they did, the ratings would go down. And it is kind of funny seeing. The TV shows that we follow where that is the case, <laughs> particularly totally Arrow, case. <laughs> like it's like, oh, you're the big will they won't they finally got together, and now you just lost two thirds of your audience
1: exactly why we're, we're gonna drag this out, yeah, because we know you suckers will keep watching uh,
0: but yeah, but so then, and there was another thing from the AV Club that made me laugh because I like speed read the sentence way too quickly, and I had like an, I, I had a visceral like no. Reaction because it said like Scott Derrickson's Doctor Strange volume true volume two actually tries to have some fun and then I thought that was the sentence and I was like no (laughs) but then it says have some fun with its production design and effects budget which I'm like okay yes that is a valid comparison like my I had issues I had so many issues with Doctor Strange but it's fun enough to look at to justify watching it again but i was just i was like no doctor strange is not in the same caliber as far as no. plots like do not compare i was worried it's that very, they were comparing the... like comparing the plots and that stressed me out <laughs> but but yeah and then it's interesting cuz the the av club brings up logan and how like yeah. how it
1: Spe- specifically they say uh recent logan Feel like such a breath of fresh air is how it holds up a fat middle finger to the wussy TV-inspired style of character development that has become the genre-dominating devi- Marvel's def- uh, default storytelling mode, which isn't entirely wrong.
0: But well, and so okay, so then I had a different note with that because I also I attached the like I quoted the sentence that was right after that, and then I like. Because so, it says, planets may, my, or planets may be imperiled on a regular basis, but major characters grow only a little. And so then after that, I wrote BVS, BVS, BVS five times over, because it's an example of characters growing a lot over... Like, while the planet is getting exploded, or, like, Doomsday is attacking the town or whatever, it's like they're still... An exponential amount of character growth, and like both yeah. Bruce and Diana changed significantly. And they're like their views on the world and how they want to be superheroes changed significantly, but they're still the big, just like light in the sky superhero, like visual effects. Yeah, they have a clear Diana. defined art, yeah, which is it's just despite coming. all
1: the crazy uh, otherworldly stuff going around, exactly.
0: Though. Yeah, which is like I feel like this movie like takes that a little bit but i do agree kind of with what the av club is saying about the growth but i feel like if we look i do feel like it's mainly just like guns kind of long con sort of thing where if we look from volume one to the end of volume three there will be an exponential amount of growth but just like going from movie to movie there's not like a whole lot
1: I think the character who got the most growth out of this was Nebula.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: She, she had the the most turnaround from the clear-cut villain from the first one. Yeah. To and it's like all right, reluctantly working with her sister. To it's like this is my tragic backstory. Yeah. I really just want to love you. Let's be BFS oh, like, I
0: loved the whole tragic backstory scene. I just I loved I loved that we got that because I remember Gunn kind of saying that he wanted to include that in the first one, but that there was like too much going on. But like I love I just love a that scene and then b one of my like biggest laughs every time I've seen this movie is like Craglin's reaction because he's just like because it's like oh what are you gonna spend the money with oh i'm gonna and then she goes on this whole long rant about how she wants to kill thanos like and make him suffer buy just yeah i'm gonna buy lots of guns yeah. and like torture him until he understands the pain i felt and then he just goes oh i was thinking like a pretty necklace or a nice hat or something <laughs> and i just i laugh out loud every time i hear that because it's just such a good like dynamic but i do love how much she's the straight man in this movie and like And yeah, yeah, she
1: really plays well off everyone else. Whereas in the first one it was
0: just like I'm angry and I'm mad and I'm working for the bad guys so I don't really get to interact with you as people. Whereas in the second one she gets to like live amongst the rest of the characters and we get to see her being like eye rolling and just snarky and done with everybody and that's just kind of an interesting kind of thing to bring into the fold because you get that with the core members of the Guardians already but they're all still they all still have like this fondness for each other whereas Nebula is just like Fuck all of you. I need a ride home.
1: (laughs) So I'm trying to remember which other review it was. It was one of these reviews. Mm -hmm. I think it was the AV Club. I don't remember offhand, but kind of going off that with bringing in Nebula onto the team and this whole theme of family, not a biological family, but uh, Um, the family is... Fest and the Furious. Yes,
0: there's two reviews that this mention that. This is Fest and
1: the Furious in Space. I
0: think, yeah, which now that that has occurred to me, I'm like, oh my God, that's actually true. Yeah, it's both... The, the...
1: Which is not a bad thing at no. all. It's, you know, you take this team of misfits. You put them together yeah. and they do questionable well, things like, and they have fun adventures. So like going
0: back to the New Yorker they talk about that at length because they say like the media historians are going to be kind of confused or just perplexed by the fact that like our biggest franchises are the Avengers and Fast and the Furious and this where it's all like the found family like different dynamic sort of thing. And then the the New York Times references that as well of like particularly the Fast and the Furious which like I don't think it's a bad thing.
1: Like, no, because it uh, makes for a fun Yorker movie. To, yeah, the New Yorker goes on to say about that that could this be how pop culture responds to the dissolution of old domestic norms? Yes, and the answer is yes, absolutely. Simply yes. Yeah, it's uh, it's a millennial thing yeah. uh, having this found family, um, n- these new norms. I don't want to get into a whole thing about <laughs> it, but it. If you're listening to this, you probably know what they are already well, and, and probably kind of, agree. It's
0: interesting because I'm, like, thinking about that. It's going to be interesting to see how Inhumans deals with that because there's, like, an element of found family, but there's still, like, actual blood relatives, yes. like, involved with it. And that's not really something that, like, has been seen really on a superhero genre because it's, like, like in the in the major superhero movies that we've already seen, we really just get, like, Thor and Loki and like them hating each other, and Odin just being disapproving in the background. Like we get like family dynamics, yeah. but we don't really get like families all like bonding together to be superheroes. So like even though Inhumans kind of looks like a mess, it's going to be interesting to see like how they handle that dynamic, the family dynamic. and how yeah. how much that differs from like this typical sort of found family thing that Guardians has. But yeah,
1: and yeah, and Inhumans will have the. Uh, Benefit or hopefully the advantage of having several episodes to spend developing those relationships, whereas Guardians has done it within four hours and done it really well. Exactly,
0: yeah. Well, and like... like, Yeah,
1: because the the New York Times article kind of, like you said, mentions the Fast and the Furious cues, too. You know, this explains the testy at times, violent and generally dreary exchanges between Gamora and her sister, a bald badass... (laughs) Um, and they just look at sl- us, uh, slam around, squaring jaws, and giving good side eye. <laughs> but but they all but they kind of critique this as narrative filler, which like kind of the family I drama.
0: Really think so?
1: I think if you took away the the family drama and the, the that kind of character development, you're just left with a ninety minute action movie. Well, and
0: I also feel like parts of it. I feel like that reviewer in particular isn't really seeing kind of the big picture of, like, how important that family drama really is to the larger MCU. Because, like, yeah, it wouldn't be important if they weren't then going to band together and fight their dad with a million other superheroes in Infinity War. Like, even if, even if like, that reviewer... Which I
1: kind of like... Yeah. I kind of like this clear distinction between the Guardians and Avengers. Yeah. I see the Avengers as a team. They work together because they have to. The Guardians work together because they want to.
0: I see it, yeah. Because, I, I, and like, we got hints of that in Civil War where it was like, the particular teams, like Team Cap felt more kind of found family-like of like, more kind of accepting towards each other and like i care about you emotionally then that's why i don't want this thing to happen to you whereas like team iron man was just kind of like we need to like work together to defend the common good or whatever there wasn't as much of like emotional investment around each other like 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 black panther did not know anyone else's names and like neither did neither did peter he was just like i'm here like, who cares? Like, Peter deliberately, like, calls people by the wrong name and stuff. Like, oh, look, oh Arrow guy is throwing things at me or whatever. Like, he, <laughs> he didn't have the emotional investment that, like, and he probably still won't in Infinity War, of, like, the emotional investment to the other Avengers the way that the Guardians have to each other.
1: Yeah, which is funny. Yeah, because this New York Times reviewer, he just totally does not buy into that kind of whole emotional arc, saying he loves the visuals behind it, not so much the narrative. Um, he says one of the most appealing visual things is the animated dioramas Also, it's that a. Sh- also, uses. I
0: think it's a she that wrote this review, possibly. Let me look.
1: I should check yeah, that. I think it's a oh, lady. Yeah. yeah, it's a lady. Uh, yeah, so strike that. <laughs> she does not like the the narrative, but the visuals, she's... Totally a fan of, and I'm gonna get I'm gonna go out on Limit limb and say that she is not a fan of the Fast and Furious. Franchise. Well, and it also
0: makes me wonder because it's like I feel like this movie takes the most narrative risks than a lot of the other MCU movies that have come before it. Like, yes, it still kind of follows a general sort of convention, but like, there's so much going on and there's so many different arcs at play that there isn't like there's still the three-act structure, but it's almost kind of three acts happening in so many different areas and at so many different times and whatever that yeah. it just feels narratively like it doesn't fall into like the typical Marvel formula of stuff, but it's interesting. It too. Does, it,
1: I think part of it, it does a lot of world building. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think like we, yeah. we
1: established the core team in the first movie yeah. and then this time Gunn's like, all right, now that we have them established, mm-hmm. I'm going to go out there and introduce this new set of characters, well, this new set of characters, this new location. Yeah,
0: well, and it's funny because the New York Times references how they, think that they thought that the opening scene was chaotic, which is the usual blockbuster way. The, um, the point is to telegraph the movie that you're about to watch as well as reintroduce the crew members, their skills, their traits, and their foibles. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's how a franchise movie is supposed to kind of work. Like, you're supposed yeah, to kind you're... of – and it, it's interesting to me because it, it, it makes me kind of step back from, like, my knowledge and my investment in, like, the comic book movies and comic book genre because it's, like it, – it makes me think of, like, the you gotta... the average people who don't think about these movies until it's, like, the thing that's just showing at the multiplex that then they go see. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you do have to reintroduce it because it, it's been three years since the first Guardian. So if you're just like an average Joe who saw the first one once and then now is seeing this one, you are going to need that like f- you're five need minute in- introduction of like w- who everybody is and how they interact with each other.
1: And it and it easily sets up the tone for the movie. It's like you get all the characters. It's like oh yeah, this is who this is. This is who that is. That's their dynamic, yeah. and it, and it's a fun opening sequence. Yeah,
0: yeah. But let me think. Going back to whatever else from the New York Times. Um, oh, so they yeah, they, they say the movie can't help but feel deadly serious as any other lucratively branded Marvel property. Which I'm like, you are wrong. <laughs>
1: like yeah. I'm like
0: honestly, like this is the least. This is the least serious of the most recent MCU outputs, I would say. Like, Ant-Man... Ant-Man is much less serious, but it's such a small movie that you kind of... I almost don't even consider it in that same sort of scale. Because it's like, of course it's going to be less serious because it's like five people. Whereas this is like a whole giant it's
1: a whole huge cast and It's a whole
0: huge cast and it's a much more it's a much bigger world that they're having to play around in whereas ant-man is just like we're in this one town and here's five people and like there's mm. like if this thing gets outside then that's a bad thing but in the meantime it's very con- like constricted to san francisco i think but so it's just interesting to me because this is the like this is so less serious to me, and it, it, I like that direction that they're trying to go in in general of having things be less yeah. serious because like I was talking with my mom who saw Guardians with me yesterday because um, and she was saying how surprised she was a by this movie and B by seeing the trailer for Ragnarok because she said, like oh yeah, that looks like so much more fun than I would ex- would have expected for a Thor movie. And it's like that is a good direction to kind of go. You don't need it to be this whole doom and gloom like we're going to we're going to just attempt to stop the big blue light in the sky and be serious the whole time. Like you can have fun with it and be ridiculous with it. That's why people are wanting to see these movies. But so it's just kind of it's
1: just funny that it took that long for them to kind of figure out that formula considering how often they've kind of copy and pasted it yeah. to other well, and I also think, franchises in this universe. I think if
0: this, if the first Guardians hadn't done well and if Deadpool hadn't done well, we wouldn't be seeing that. But I feel like Deadpool no. was a really good indication that you can be as loose and ridiculous as you want and people will still go see it and it'll be a huge hit. So I think that's kind of allowed for a little bit more of a creative um, like creative liberty in terms of like not just conforming to the Marvel formula, essentially. But yeah...
1: So, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of looking over the, the New York Times review, and there's a couple of things that kind of stand out. Uh, one thing that they, they mentioned that we kind of already went on um, is the whole Peter Gamora romance. And they say, it's like, yeah, Gun is he's he's probably saving that for the next installment. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to say, the larger problem, as it becomes progressively evident, is in, and that this series lacks a resonant origin story myth on which a world multiple stories and a fan base can rest. Which, uh, this is the sequel, you yeah. don't really need the origin story well, that was the point yeah. of volume well, one.
0: Like, I feel like this team, as a concept, does not need an origin story the way that the Avengers kind of did. Like, It, it makes sense to me. No. It's like, okay, they were all stuck in a space prison, and they all got out, and they got stuck together, and then now they're doing this thing. Like that. That's yeah, it's, all it's the setup like I... that you need.
1: Yeah, it's not like when I watched... The Lord of the Rings, it's like, oh, you know, I really wish I had a Legolas solo movie or a Gimli solo movie. It's like, no, I. they're introduced quickly, you understand who they are, and you just move on. Uh, you can have these um, ensemble movies without having the buildup of individual movies. Yeah,
0: although I will say the current Gamora comic book is incredible and written by Nicole, per- Nicole Perlman, who co-wrote the first one with Gunn and it's really good and i highly recommend that for anyone who's mm-hmm. listening cuz yeah it's like it's it's her own kind of slightly in tune with the movie but slightly its own thing and it's like it's it's just a really interesting it's not particularly an origin but it's like a continuation of like what we would see if she wasn't playing around with the guardians right now but yeah but like i wouldn't want a whole movie like,
1: no, yeah, because th- that's the fun of this movie, and Gunn knows that, is seeing these characters together, mm-hmm. not on their own. I mean, we kind of get little glimpses of that because he does split the team up, but even yeah. then, they're not really alone. Like, we still got like, Rocket, Groot, and Yandu yeah. together, then we got uh, Peter, Gamora, and Drax together.
0: Which I feel like that, like, this sort of format of let's introduce everyone at the same time and then suddenly they're a team, it makes a little bit more, I don't know, it makes it a little bit more seamless than introducing all of the Avengers and getting them all to be a team was. Which, obviously, the whole big crux of the Avengers movie was, like, let's have them argue with each other about how to do anything. But it's like, I having having spent five years leading up to that, building all of the solo movies, you went in with preconceived notions about how the characters were going to interact with each other, and then there was, like... There were obviously some people in the audience who ended up disappointed that then, like, the dynamic between two particular characters wasn't the way that it would have been. Whereas with this, it's like, you don't really get time for that. It's just like, oh, from the get-go, here are these people, and here's their dynamic with each other.
1: Yeah, it, it's a really nice way to kind of go about it and establish uh this team yeah in a relatively short amount of time yeah because it's not like uh in the first one it took forever for the team to get together no they all kind of met relatively early on
0: yeah and like by accident yeah which i find i find that to be more of like kind of a fascinating story of like we're we're here together because of kind of necessity, which is where like I think like Defenders and Justice League are both going to do really well at. Where it's like we wouldn't really be teaming up just on the casual, but like there's this huge threat that's coming and we so need we to should be, probably yeah we yeah. need to be hanging out together and working together and all that stuff and i feel like that works and then working together better.
1: we discover the true meaning of friendship along the way oh uh, <laughs> but really that's like the yeah, theme of the movie it, exactly it, and, it, and it works like yeah it's like oh shit we gotta save the world let's team up yeah we save the world let's just keep hanging out
0: yeah it's like that that's really kind of more of an effective version of that but yeah um going back to the new york times let me see uh, so, I, I th- this reviewer goes in depth about how disturbed they were by um, the, like, facial prosthetics. Like, the visual facial prosthetics that Kurt Russell is wearing in the very first <laughs> scene. Which is so funny to me because it wasn't particularly distracting for me in this one. Whereas it really um, has been in the other times that Marvel's used it.
1: Yeah. like and they've used it a lot.
0: Like, because they used it on Hank Pym in... Ant Man, kind of like aging him down, and then yeah, Michael then, Douglas, yeah, Michael and then Douglas, with, and, and then, then they
1: used it with ugh, Tony and Civil I hate Civil that. War.
0: I hate that scene so it's much. It's so jarring. It's so upsetting. It's like it's it's
1: this uncanny <sighs> valley that I just it's weird. And
0: like it's one thing to have it be where it's like okay, you're obviously doing a flashback, and I am supposed to believe that this is how this person looked at that point in time. And, like, there's a difference between that and how it's done in Civil War where it's, like, you see young Tony and then suddenly old, old Tony stands behind him. And I'm, like, this is – I'm uncomfortable. Like, this should not yeah. be happening. Where, But, like, with the Kurt Russell thing, it's, like, yeah, he looks exactly like 80s Kurt Russell. He might not look completely perfectly, but it's, but like – But it doesn't
1: – it's not enough to take me out of it. Yeah,
0: it, it works significantly. And, like, my mom leaned over to me yesterday and was, like, man – they really made him look really young. That's impressive. Like, yeah. like it took her out of it for a moment, but not in a bad way. It was like, well, that's good. That looks like '80s Kurt Russell, who like everyone, everyone who's in a certain age demographic is instantly going to recognize because it's like, yeah. oh shit, we know him from like Big Trouble in Little China and all of the like peak Kurt Kurt Russell kind of movies.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, but so, so that kind was kind of, of funny. And that's another thing that the New York Times review kind of goes into that again they like the visuals more than the narrative and that's the appeal for them um i like i like the description of i like the description of kaleidoscope kaleidoscopic fantasia
0: yes because it is very true it's like just a feast for your eyes sort of and it's like i i don't know i like when things are willing to kind of take risks in that sort of way visually Like, if a movie has a pretty-looking trailer and I might not have been too concerned about the movie beforehand, it's like, well, now I'm suddenly interested because that thing looks gorgeous. (laughs) And, like, even if I'm just sitting there and watching, like, really pretty cinematography for two hours, then that's fine with me.
1: And it really should be pretty, especially when you have this character, Ego, who can make anything he wants, literally anything. This planet better look visually amazing.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's funny hearing audience reactions to ego's planet because like it's almost like a visceral sort it's it's funny hearing the visceral reactions to the visual things within this movie because like multiple times I think the second time I saw it and then the first time as well when Aisha is in her throne thing and then she steps out of oh, the gosh, dress yes. and it like looks like the throne is part of her I have heard people gasp like audibly gasp at that, that and was it's just like amazing. I, that's so impressive to me that like James Gunn can just do like this person stepping out of a chair suddenly turns into this whole big visual, like, masterpiece sort of thing that it, like, creates this, like, involuntary reaction from people. I'm, like, I'm really amazed at that capability. And, like, that and, like, seeing Ego's Planet for the first time and stuff like that, it's just fun seeing how. Like, it's fun seeing people be interested in good cinematography because it's something that yeah. always impacts me when I see movies of, like, oh, shit, this this scene's amazing. That shot is so pretty. Oh, my gosh. But it's fun. Like one of, yeah. The,
1: one of the shots that I thought I really enjoyed was the one of Gamora sitting out in yes. the field just by herself. And it's, like, I was, like, I was thinking, I was like, I want that as my screensaver on my I, desktop right yes, now. Yes,
0: because it's so – it's, like, a feast for your eyes. It's so pretty.
1: You got gun uh, – yeah, he. I, I'm looking forward to volume three. Me too. Just to see the new kind of visuals he's gonna have yeah. with the new characters, it, it's gonna be fun. Yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of glancing over other. Yeah. Uh, so I have like, yeah, I have like one main tidbit. Yeah. Stuff.
0: Yeah. I have one more tidbit from the New York Times review, and then we can kind of go into that. Will go into my rant, and then from there we can go into our final segment, which ties into volume three a little bit. Um, but so. So one of the one of the things that the New York Times review kinda of talks about a lot is the how elements of the movie felt a little too dark, which is interesting to me. Like in particular they talk about the scene with Yandu and Rocket and Groot kind of killing all the Ravengers and stuff and how that felt like a departure which it at the same like at the same time, I did yeah. kind of feel that the first time I saw it, I was like, "Wow, this is way more violent than the first one was." But it felt like in like a one-upping kind of way. It didn't feel in like yeah,
1: it's kind of that typical sequel thing where it goes just a hint darker yeah. than before. Well, and it
0: is it is also kind of funny because it's like. <laughs> comparing that to like other big fight scenes that have been like or or like scenes of that similar sort of caliber that have like resonated with fans it's like the darth vader scene in rogue one where it's like he just kind of fucking plows through yes. 20 rebels in five minutes and whatever like stuff like that like yes it is kind of gratuitous but it's done in a way that it has an effect behind it and there's an enough emotion behind it to where it's not just like obnoxiously so like you, you and then, it feels to earned. counter
1: and then to counter that there's there was one point where I thought it's like okay this is getting a little too cartoony yeah um was the point where rocket is messing with the ravagers in the forest yeah and he's messing with their gravity and there's kind of that wide shot where you see them <laughs> go up and down I up like and that down though. I, I see I got to see it again because I thought it's like wow this is getting really cartoony like it, compared to
0: yeah, it's just I, I find that as just kind of like a fun moment because oh it, yeah, cause it's like fun. Like singing it with the music and stuff, and it was like my family was talking about the movie yesterday, and like my sister saw the movie two weeks ago, and she still was like, "What'd you think?" Like asking my mom, "What'd you think about the scene where you know rockets messing with all the people and they fly up and down in the trees?" So it was like that was noteworthy to her because it was just like such a funny kind of sequence to see. But Which, like, I guess yeah. that
1: kind of speaks to how well this movie's made; it, it can appeal to. Young kids, you yeah. can get the old people, the middle people. The middle the, people. <laughs> the middle, meaning uh, us, yes. millennials.
0: us. We are the middle people. Petition to <laughs> rename the millennials the middle
1: people. <laughs> We're the middle people.
0: <laughs> um, that sounds like a sitcom, like a bad ABC uh, let's sitcom not, that's like Let's not give them
1: ideas. Well, they need a spot to fill after Last Man Standing.
0: <laughs> oh, God. Um. But no, so going into that, like my whole thing is going back to the scene of yandu's whole thing and how people thought how this reviewer in particular thought that that was too violent for me it was but then it makes sense within the context of the movie and it makes sense with what immediately follows it because like yeah. earlier on in the movie like you see all of the ravengers being like suffocated to death and like that is dark as fuck and it's like yes. so it's it's obviously justified like there's a little bit of too much like there's a lot of glee in the scene when like Yandu's <laughs> killing everyone but it's like it's earned because like these people are being assholes to him and he and we also don't, and we he don't also probably because Yondu's a badass when he also probably has like a lifetime of animosity towards all yes. of these people, so it's a little more deserved because it's like, yeah, y'all have been y'all have been awful to me way before this movie even started. But so it's like that, which also, <laughs> I always feel really bad for Steve Agee and his character's death because it's so amazing. But I'm always like so poor Steve Agee because it's just like dying, drinking a glass of beer, and like the beer breaks, and then he gets shot with with the arrow. And I'm like, oh, I wanted Aww. a Steve Agee spinoff because <laughs>
1: he's
0: so great but that would have been great it would have been so great but like for me within the context of the movie like there's enough leading up to it to justify it being so dark but then almost immediately after like they that happens and then they get on the spaceship and then after that you discover what ego's plan is and like you start to see his sort of like how how evil his plan is and you start to see like the the cave full of bodies and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, this movie is going to be willing to get dark because that's the kind of story it wants to tell.
1: Which I feel like that's when the story, like the main part of the story really kicks in because we spend the first two ha- two quarters, two th- I can't two th- do two, math.
0: Two, a quarter <laughs> is 25. We can't even buy a <laughs> pair of boots for that. <laughs>
1: so the first two thirds of the movie is kind of spent developing the characters, and not so much the plot of the movie, yeah. which kind of goes back into that, how Gun kind of plays with the the typical three-act structure yeah. while retaining that three-act structure. Because
0: well, I remember watching it for the first time and thinking, okay, so they're going to go to Ego's planet, and then after that they're going to go to another planet, and that's where they're going to meet the villain. Like, I, yeah. I, I kept thinking, like, there's going to be more in a three-act structure to this movie, and Ego's just going to kind of be, like, their Gandalf that's just, like, helping them through it. But yeah, because then, then we like, told it's yeah. like, oh,
1: yeah, Aisha's going to come back and yeah. have a fight on the Which Ego she does, something.
0: but, yeah. Yeah. But, like, it's just kind of interesting to me, and, like, I'm trying to think of how to articulate that whole long rant that I've had planned for a really long time. I literally, like, a huge part of why we wanted to start this podcast was, like, I have thoughts about movies, and we yeah. need to be able to <laughs> articulate them. But, like... So,
1: to, to summarize, uh, ego kind of plays into that white male entitlement.
0: Exactly. Uh, well, and like...
1: Uh, I don't want to say trope, but it's because it's, it's a real it's, thing.
0: It's an allegory, or it's a, it's a like
1: no, yeah, differently.
0: It, it's a differently packaged way to kind of address the like white male culture and like white male rape culture, and like there's so many things in his performance that. You can you can apply to like realistic sort of situations and whatever. He's this, and, like,
1: he's this charming guy who goes around impregnating women and then leaves and returns when it's convenient.
0: Yeah, oh. and and well, and it's interesting to me because it's this whole thing of like female agency and like consent and all of that because there's like the way we only get his perception of how think of like how that whole expansion happened of like, oh, I tried to impregnate all this, these women to get an heir. And it's like, well, did you go about it in a consensual way? Because you're evil as hell. So you you could have not. And that would make you even more evil. And then it's like, yes. it goes from that into him, because like, he, he strips kind of all of those women out of their agency because it's like, well, you're left th- with this baby that then I'm going to come back and take from you. Because, and we're left because to presume that he probably
1: killed the moms too, Oh, like yeah. he did with Peter's.
0: Yeah, because well, because then it's like I'm real like the more that I would hear his lines and like hear his context, I would kind of wonder like what the truth actually is because we just get ego's point of view. Because well, because like even his story starts to not really line up because he like he finds he he figures out how to create like the human kurt russell version of him and then he he says that he then goes out and does the expansion and then that he or like that he goes out to find new life and that that then he finds peter's mom like very soon after but then later in the movie he says oh i've been doing this for millions and millions of years so i'm like you're already lying buddy like what else are you Mm -hmm. lying about but then like the whole thing of Like, I can't be with Peter's mom, so I'm going to put cancer in her and have her die and, like, take away her agency to, like, live a life without me is so fascinating to me because it's indicative of that weird white male rape culture that is shown but isn't really like isn't portrayed in a very dynamic way in media. Like people are still trying to figure out how to address that head on yeah.
1: and like yeah. make it, it a Gun thing. Gun does it in a very subtle good way. way, a subtle way where it's not obvious. It will, if you're not aware of it or not looking for it, you won't find it. But if you are kind of aware of those kind of uh, identifiers of that kind of person, you can see it well, in like ego the,
0: and like the day before i had seen this movie i had read an article that there's, like, some new trend called stealthing, where it's basically, like, dudes have sex with ladies and, like, make them think that they have protection on, and then they take it off in the middle, and then it's like, oh, I'm I'm getting them pregnant, and they don't know it, and it's a surprise. And it's, like, that, that like, I read that, and then the day after, I saw Guardians, and I was like, holy shit, that's literally what Ego did.
1: Yep. <laughs> I'm like, hey, For guess millions what? Millions <laughs> of years across yeah. the universe. Yeah,
0: but so it's just fascinating to me, because, <clears throat> cause like, you see that in, like... You see that in Jessica Jones in a very, like, upfront sort of way. It's like, we're making a story about a rape survivor and about her trying to kill her rapist and about all of the dynamics and the intricacies and the trauma that goes alongside that. But then it's interesting to have that be packaged in a dark TV show, whereas, like, in another version of it and a much more mainstream, ad- like, addressing of it is in this big, colorful, happy movie. And I'm just like, it's brilliant to me that Gunn kind of snuck that in there and that all these people are kind of, like, getting kind of educated about, like, female agency and all of that sort of stuff while they're watching this big happy movie. And it's just kind of interesting to me. It's James Gunn's
1: secret feminist agenda (laughs) in my superhero movies. I don't like it.
0: Well, and it's like, but it's just so interesting to me because it's like, you, I don't know, and and it it makes ego so much more terrifying than... Every other villain that has been seen in the Because he Marvel actually has movies.
1: depth and development, and he's and like, actually... Because what makes him really terrifying is that he could really exist, yeah. despite being a big planet.
0: He could be, like, that version of him could just be walking... Like, it already does walk around amongst you, and, like, it's just kind of... it's It's interesting to have that be the villain, as opposed to, like a big garbled alien that doesn't speak English and like, yes. like, but it, it's just fascinating. you, dark world. <laughs> exactly. Any chance we have to make fun of dark world, we will make we will be making fun of dark world. But so it's just fascinating to me. And it, it's like, I wasn't expecting this movie to create the scariest Marvel villain, but it absolutely did. But it's also one of those things where I know it's not scary to everyone, but I would be curious to see how many other women watching the movie had that same sort of mindset and like that same sort of response to ego, because it's like when you, when you plant that seed in your mind, it's like abundantly obvious through the, through the rest of the movie. So let us
1: know in the comments down below what you think of ego.
0: Yes, exactly. But, but yeah, so that was my whole big rant about guardians was that I just think that that's really fascinating. And like, I'm really happy that that was able to exist in the superhero movie and like the the big like world trending blockbuster has this whole sort of discussion in it I find that really fascinating because you don't really see that subtly snuck into movies anymore so
1: no so yeah so uh, yeah let us know in the comments down below what
0: I think you we think have time, of time for... any of what we're saying
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah do we have time for our last little segment
0: I think we do um, alright so, so at okay. the end of
1: the the podcast, we like to do a little fan casting, kind of related. So, uh, we'll take the movie that we're looking at reviewing, and then we'll kind of take like the director or the lead, or just kind of fan cast them in another kind of superhero comic book movie. But so, so it time,
0: usually works for if if we're if we're watching a normal movie and we can kind of apply the director and the star to that sort of thing. But it would be kind of it would be a little. I'm trying to figure out how to explain it. It would be kind of a pipe dream to do it with this cast because it's like they're obviously staying in Guardians. and yeah. Guns is obvious. Gun is obviously staying in Guardians. That's not going to change. S- yeah. But so so we what we're going to do with this
1: one is we're going to fan cast Adam Warlock. Yes. Who's because been teased in this one and yes. who will most likely show up in Volume Three? Yes. So. So. Who? Who's your pick? Because this okay. one was a tough one for me.
0: I want to hear yours first because mine is a little left field.
1: So I was trying to look up, I don't know, I, I was trying to find some kind of, some POC actor.
0: Thank you. Um,
1: I'm glad I, that I,
0: we both had that mindset.
1: So I was <laughs> not having luck. Okay. Unfortunately. Maybe okay. you did. So, cause like I, I Googled Adam Warlock fan cast and I got generic white yes, dudes. exactly. Like Alexander Scarzard. Oh God. But I did kind of see one and come across one that's like, he is a white guy. Yeah. But it would be... You'll like it. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm gonna butcher his name. <laughs> what? Mikkel Huesman. He...
0: Oh, yes. But see, the thing I... is, is that he's already in Justice League.
1: Oh, that's right. So, sure. like, oh, but well, I would I, I, that, that would fan be cast awesome? Anyways.
0: Yeah, that would be. I could see that definitely, and like he has so the you, he has the hair. So,
1: if you don't know who he is, he plays Cal on Orphan Black and Dario. On Game of Thrones. The
0: second Dario. The first one was um, the douchebag from Deadpool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this guy he he he's handsome enough. He, he, has, he, he, can he act. has a pretty cool accent. He can act. He's my uh, white bread pick. <laughs> Okay. So what is is yours? So
0: I was floating around because I was like, my answer has to be a person of color. Because if there's honestly, like I could see for one reason, I honestly, I would love to see the fan response to that because it would be significant enough for for some people to be a positive response. But it also would get like the crybabies really angry, which would make me happy. (laughs) But like... And, like, my thing is, I I can kind of see the argument against casting a a POC as, like, the villain, but Adam Warlock is both a villain and a, a protagonist. It just depends on... Like what story we're telling, and like how they're going to use him, and I feel like that'll
1: most likely be his arc in yeah, like, Volume Three like, from Gunn, villain to hero. Because
0: like Gunn really wanted to use him in Volume Two, but he said he was kind of one character too many. Which I'm glad that he's not. I'm I'm glad that he's giving Adam this whole big like teased origin sort of thing of like yeah, he's the post credit scene and then shows that he's kind of and kinda, then, and be, then it
1: shows that he's looking ahead and kind of has the wherewithal to kind of plan yeah at least a little bit this trilogy.
0: Well, and it like gives. It, it also gives the nerd world, like, another thing to fan cast, because, like, now that Cable has been cast, we really need yeah. another one. <laughs> so, yes. But so, I was thinking about it, because I was like, it would be really fun to have it be a person of color to kind of do that, that art yes. from... Cause, so, like, I, well, because I was paying attention. So, who'd you pick? Well, I'm trying to justify uh. it and explain. Because uh. I was thinking about it, because, like, Aisha's people, there I do think there were people of color mixed in there. It was, like, in, like, the background and whatever, but they're all painted gold, yeah. so it doesn't really make a difference. It's like, they're very much... Like, like, there there is as much justification to have him be a person of color as it is to have it be a white person because his face is going to be painted gold anyway, so it does not really matter. But so my thought is Riz Ahmed.
1: That would be interesting.
0: Because, like, like I was thinking about it, and I, I like, floated around, like, a couple other people. I was like, well, what about, like, Diego Luna or, like, a couple of other people that, like, could totally fit it? But then I was watching it again yesterday, and then this is mainly just me kind of being ridiculous, but, like, in the post-credit scene, it's like... He's just talking about how it's like he's like the next step in our evolution, and he's more perfect and beautiful and capable than than all of us before. So I'm like, like how many people would be like gleefully happy at the idea of having it be Riz Ahmed? Because like, I just
1: want Riz Ahmed with gold hair,
0: exactly. And it would be like it would be such a weird departure from the roles that people know him for, but it would work so well that I feel like it needs to happen. Yeah, because like. Because, like, he can do ridiculous stuff. He can do comedy. He can do drama. And it would just be really fun to kind of see him in that. And then also kind of have everybody freak out over him in Guardians 3 the way that people are freaking out over, like, Kate Blanchett in Ragnarok. Yes. Where it's just like, God, slay me. This is so amazing. Uh- <laughs> like, and I feel like that would be the perfect, would be, like, I, I realistically... They're probably going to cast some white guy, but I, I really have hope that they will do, like, kind of this complete left field sort of casting. of. So, like, James
1: Gunn, if you're yes. listening. Riz Ahmed. Please take our advice. He's in the Disney family. Advice.
0: He's in the Disney family already. So, so it's not it's a like, stretch. Yeah, it's like, it would be so perfect. So, yeah, that's my pick for Adam Warlock. I just think that would be so much fun to see. And, like, I need Riz Ahmed in a superhero movie anyway. So, so please,
1: Universe, let yes. it be this one. Got or if you have an alternative... Pick, let us know in the comments down below. Yes. Or tweet us. Yes. Where can they find you on the Twitter?
0: Okay, so first of all, our show Twitter is at Tomato Tomato Pod. Um you can follow us and we will greatly appreciate that follow and you can talk to us. We will gladly respond back to you.
1: I um, won't. <laughs> yes, kidding. you will. I love people. Good. Most people. Some people.
0: Good. <laughs> but so you can find me at Hey, it's Jenna Lynn. And I also write for comicbook.com. So if you go to my Twitter bio and my like link in my bio is all of my stories at comicbook.com. I have written significantly about Guardians, so and you can yeah. hear more.
1: <laughs> she she writes good things.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: and you could follow me at the Chris Vitto. You can currently follow me on tour as I go around panhandling for my student loans. <laughs> uh, other than that, I'm not doing anything.
0: Just yeah.
1: Well, that was episode two.
0: Yes, it was a very so, good,
1: productive episode two. I'd like to say.
0: Yes, we still don't have an ending yet.
1: No, we don't. No. So we're just let's just keep, say bye keep, to the lovely people.
0: Bye. Keep watching movies.
1: Keep watching movies. Bye. 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 <laughs> Outro music.